Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, I do uh, feel just humbled in, the, in your presence this morning. Just, Lord, a handful of people, but what powerful worship this morning because it's coming from a place of uh, inside us, Lord, that wishes to give you glory and honor, Lord, through our singing and through our praying and through our praise and through our study, Lord. That's what we're here to do, Lord, this morning. So I pray that it would just put a smile on your face as we gather here. Lord, I pray that you would take this time this morning, that you would open up our hearts and open up our ears, that we might have hearts to receive and ears to hear what it is that you have already prepared for us to hear this morning. Lord, we thank you. Lord, it's in your name, Jesus, the most wonderful name, Lord, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to him saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? At that time, by the way, doesn't mean at the moment that, remember in the last chapter, Jesus had told Peter to go and catch a fish, and we talked about like the craziest miracle in the Bible of go and catch a fish, and you're going to find a coin, and with that coin, you're going to pay our temple taxes, he says to Peter, and, and uh, what, a great, what a great miracle that is. I mean, that it's, uh, you can't fake that one. You can't fake that. Who could, who could fake that? It's not just catch a fish. Catch the, fir- the first fish that you catch. We'll have a coin in there. If you recall last week, I said that Jesus, I believe, did this in such a way to foreshadow what he would do. He would pay a debt, the one who didn't owe any debt at all, as he states in the description of what he tells Peter to do. The one who owes no debt at all will still pay the debt but he'll do it in a way that's impossible for anyone else to do or to recreate or to fake. Isn't that cool? Jesus got an eye on that. Well, when chapter 18 starts off with at the time, at that time, he doesn't mean at that time. What he's actually referring to is if you were to read the Gospel of Mark, you'll see that they're on the road to the way, on their way to Capernaum, which is where this is going to take place. And on the way to Capernaum, Jesus is walking along, going to Capernaum, and behind him are his disciples. And you know what Mark says the disciples were doing on the road to Capernaum, walking behind Jesus? They were arguing amongst themselves as to which one of them was the greatest in heaven, or would be. I think they're thinking, well, obviously Jesus is number one, but I mean, come on. (laughs) And they was like, you got to be kidding me. Not you, me. No, not me. My brother and I. And they're arguing, it says, about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so in Mark, it says that when they got to the house in Capernaum, those they were going, Jesus says, hey, what were you guys arguing about back there? And you know what they say? Nothing. They're like, you know why? Because they knew it was stupid. (laughs) They knew he wouldn't be happy to hear that they were arguing about which one of them was the greatest. But this is where it picks up in chapter 18, that one of them finally steps up and says, well, Jesus, actually what we were thinking was, which one of us will be the greatest 
in the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> Which one of us? And so they say, well, Jesus, we were arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Obviously, it's you, but, you know, who's second? You know, Jesus had demonstrated time and time again his divine power over the natural world as well as the spiritual and demonic world. He has operated out of a place of compassion over and over again, healing groups, feeding masses of people. He's now at least three times spoken of his own suffering, death, and resurrection. And what is the top concern of disciples right now? Their position. Which one of us is the greatest? Now, maybe it was one of the three guys. Peter, James, and John, that he took up to the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, which we looked at. Maybe one of them is feeling a little bit puffed up through that whole experience. I, I, probably not Peter, although maybe. I mean, Peter was the one that kind of got rebuked by God. James and John, it could be, because you will see later on, James and John, after this moment, will even after all that they're going to hear today, will still come back to Jesus and be like, Jesus, can me and my brother sit on your right hand and your left when you come into power? Still! even after what they're going to hear today. So maybe it was one of these three guys feeling a little bit like, well, you know, he did just kind of narrow it down to one of us three. Maybe it was the other nine, some of the other nine, who are feeling a little bit uneasy about their ranking now in the group since they weren't one of the three that got called. They're feeling a little bit insecure because of the apparent lack of recognition Whomever it was, whether it was Peter or James or John or one of the other nine, really what it comes down to is the same root cause of the argument. You know what it was? Pride. Pride. They wanted to see which one of us is elevated among the others. Pride causes us to think in a way that is dangerous. Pride makes us act in ways that is destructive. Our pride says, I am great, and if no one else can see that, then I will just lift myself up even higher. <laughs> you know, the Bible says that God hates pride. Proverbs 6, 16 to 17, there are six things that the Lord hates. Yes, there are seven that are an abomination to him. You know what the first one is? Guess. Pride. First one, Pride. He hates pride so much, but why? Pride was the cause of the first act of rebellion. I'm going to read this, Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. This is talking about how Lucifer, who we would know as Satan, was once and for all cast out of heaven. It says, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation and the, on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And God says, you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Kicks him right out of heaven. Now he kicks him out of heaven. He lands in earth <laughs> where God says, 
Now you can, you're going to operate down here. And so what does he do? He takes his downfall, pride, and now he uses it. Well, you know what happens in the garden? He goes to Eve and ultimately to Adam and he says, see that tree right there? God told you not to eat of that tree. You know why? Because God knows that when you eat of that tree, you will be like him. So Eve eats of the tree, and she gives it to Adam, and Adam eats of the tree, and sin through humankind is introduced into the world through pride. Satan then tried to use pride to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. Remember, after his baptism, he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days, and he doesn't eat, and he doesn't drink, and the devil comes to him and tries to tempt him. And one of the ways he goes, Jesus... Look at all the kingdoms of the world. They're all mine, and I'll give them to you. They will worship you if you'll just worship me. And he tries to appeal to, to Jesus' pride. Jesus isn't having it, is he? It doesn't stop him, though. Satan will then try to use our pride in our lives to tempt us to sin as well. He'll say things like, look at all the recognition they're getting. You're better than they are. You deserve that, not them. Then he says, why aren't you better? Why aren't you first? Because you're not pushing yourself hard enough. Don't worry about the people you have to step on to get there. You know, when you're at the top, you can help all the little people later. Pride. He hates pride. This first part of this chapter, he's addressing their pride. They're coming to him saying, which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You want to know something crazy? The word greatest, you know what it is in Greek? Megas. <laughs> Megas, it just means large, but it's a comparative word. It doesn't mean I'm large because of my own merit. It means I'm large compared to someone less than me. They're saying, compared to all the others in this group, who's, who's greater? If I stand next to someone who's five foot, I'm tall compared to them. But if I stand next to someone who's seven foot, I'm short compared to them. They're saying, not based on our own ability or merit or anything about us, but compared to everyone else, which one of us is the greatest compared to them. Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them. Jesus says, you want to, okay, all right, you want to be compared to someone, come here. And he calls a child who comes to him and sits on his knee and he says, you know what? You need to compare yourself to this child. If you want to compare, here you go. Here's the comparison. He said, surely I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, unless you are converted and become as little children, converted, it's a word that means change your direction. Well, we might say change your mind. You need to change your mind rather than say it's not the strongest or largest but rather you need to become as a child. You need to think differently now. You need to say, okay, what is it that he's trying to say? I need to become seven? You could then join the children's choir. 
He also says that you need to be converted and become as little children. Become means transition from one point to the next. And Jesus is saying to them, you need to, guys, you need to reverse your thinking. It's not in the sense that you're thinking great. It's actually thinking great in the sense of great humility. The child itself is part of the example. If you haven't seen that before, Jesus calls the child and the child comes to him. He simply goes to him. He is not afraid. He trusts Jesus. He believes that Jesus means good. He's not trying to figure Jesus out or trying to discern his motives. He's called and he simply comes. That's part of what Jesus is saying when he says, you need to be as a child. Don't be afraid. When he calls you, you come. Don't try and figure out his motives. I'm trying to say, I've got Jesus all figured out. I know all there is to know about him. Don't be afraid. Trust him. Come to him when he calls you. If you do that, you are a child of his. He, that's what he's going to go on and say, the, ch- the children are mine. These are the children of mine. When he comes, you go. That's part of what he's saying. Be like this little child. He's not afraid. Now, we don't get the impression when he calls the child that the child is like, hey, looking around the room going, losers, look who Jesus called. What's got two thumbs and is really humble? This guy. That's actually the opposite of humility. If you, I'm not getting that. You, know, you wouldn't see that in a child at that age, at that time. You wouldn't see this kind of braggadocious spirit of, well, I'm the one that he called. He simply goes because Jesus called. He goes, and we would say, humbly. Look, he follows that up in verse 4. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Why is humility required why does jesus say that why is he requiring one to be humble because in order to be saved you must admit you are unable to save yourself you must admit that you are a sinner you must admit that you need a savior and you must accept Jesus' forgiveness. A prideful person will never do these things. We live in a country that says, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Do you know what bootstraps are? They're, they're, like, have you ever watched Little House on the Prairie? Pa has got his boots, and they've got these like straps that they would grab on, and that's how you pull your boot on, right? Well, how do you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps? It's a saying that's used that's impossible to do. Do they not see the irony in the saying? (laughs) You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You have to say, you have to admit, I am not good enough. I am not strong enough. I am sinful. I can't save myself. You have to humble yourself and say those things. And he says, yes. That's what you need to do. But guess what? I've done all that. I've saved you. I've forgiven your sins. I love you. You simply come when I call. You cannot be a prideful person and answer that call. You won't answer the call. He says, 
Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Ah. A couple things. They had two different size millstones. Were you aware of this? They had one of that, like, the hand-sized version that they would use to grind grain in their, like, kitchen. And then they had one, and in Greek, this one is called, uh, well, I'll use donkey, <laughs> the donkey stone. All right? This is the donkey stone. And you know what that means. It was so big, three or 400 pounds, that the donkey would be required to grill. And that would be on a much larger basis. And Jesus is saying, it would be better... For those who cause my children to sin, it would be better for them if a 300-pound stone was tied around their neck and they were dropped into the sea and drowned. Do you know that they had four um, forms of capital punishment? The Jews had four forms of capital punishment that they understood. Stoning, um, beheading, strangling, and burning. They thought drowning was too awful of a death to even ever consider. So when Jesus says, compared to what will be in store for one of these, having a millstone tied around their neck and dying in a way that is unspeakable to us, that's more preferred. Does that give you the, the, help you to understand how stark a warning this is that Jesus is saying that if, you're, if, if someone is causing one of my children to sin, it would be more preferable that this happened to them, this unspeakable type of death, than what actually awaits them because of what they've done. The thing that drives Jesus the most crazy is when people block access from, for a person to God. Remember how incised, incised, mad he gets when he goes into the temple and he sees that they've turned into a marketplace because that was the only place where the non-Jews could go and actually connect with God. And he goes in and he's turning over tables. We'd never see Jesus like freak out like that, except for in those two times when they've taken the the access point of God for non-Jews and filled it up with corruption and poison. And he gets so angry. And here he says, it would be better for those who caused my children to sin that they died in this unspeakable, horrible way than what awaits them. I always think about when I hear that verse, I always think, well, that's, you know, obviously that's talking about like, you know, like the, the terrorist person who kidnaps a Christian and then tries to under, you know, threat of death, make them curse God. And, and yes, and how about the person who creates a porno website? How about the person who creates a website that speaks out against the truth of the Bible? How about the college professor who sits there and mocks a student for their faith in God and embarrasses them in front of everybody? How about even the friend who sits there and says, you believe that? Bible stuff? You believe that? How about the religious leader who says, you really want to know God? Get your checkbooks out. You want to be close to God? $1,000 will do it today. Millstone. Would be better that a millstone was tied around that person's neck. 
Then Jesus says, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands and two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. We've talked about this before. We know that Jesus isn't literally saying, cut off your hand, pluck out your eye. If you only have one hand, can you sin with the other? Yes. Yes, you can. Can a blind person sin? Yes, they can. He is not talking about literal surgery. He's talking about spiritual surgery. If there is something in your life that is causing you to stumble into sin, he says, take drastic action and cut it out of your life. Is anybody thinking right now of anything in your life that you battle with that causes you to be tempted to sin? He says, do something drastic. Cut it off. How many of you think maybe, and I'm, you know, I'm not saying it's true for everybody, but how many of you have a device that you're just, and you're like, oh, I don't go to bad sites. I don't look at things that I shouldn't look at. How about the fact that you're just looking all the time? How about the fact that you're not talking to people around you? I'm, I'm talking. I'm talking to them right now. How many of you refer to text messaging as I talked to somebody today? I don't think that's bad. But, but how many of you just find yourself reading these sites and getting wrapped up in Gossip, celebrity news, celebrity news, come on. You know, what's celebrity news? It's gossip. Do you know that there are steps you could take? You're like, well, I need my phone because that's how I communicate with people. I totally get that. I say the same thing. I need my phone. Do you know that you could get a phone that doesn't have any internet on it at all? You could get a Gab phone. It's set up for kids, you know? But you can get a Gab phone. It's got phone. It's got texting. You could get some directions. All the stuff that you're going to tell me that you need, you can do without the internet, without social media, without any of that stuff. And it costs the same. And you could do that if that's your thing. I'm not saying that's your thing for everybody. But if that's your thing, there are options. And God would say, take drastic actions. If every time you open your computer, you, like, listen, I don't know how this happened. I honestly, I don't know how this happened. But whenever I would go onto Facebook, I would get these pop-up ads or things in the corner that are just trying to lure me into, like, what was it called? Like, risque vintage photos. What the, what? They're just right there. The devil's like, let's try this. And I had to get rid of it. I had to get rid of Facebook altogether. (laughs) Jesus says, whatever that is in your life that's causing you to stumble into sin, cut it out. Take drastic action. It'd be better that you don't have a phone than go into hell holding it in your hand. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my fa- always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. That is a verse that means this: 
There is nothing that happens here that God doesn't know about already. So if you're sitting there and you're feeling like, oh, there's injustice and God doesn't know about this. No, he knows. He knows if someone is uh, causing one of his little ones to stumble into sin. He knows it. He knows that everything that you're doing, he knows everything that you're saying, he knows everything you're thinking. There is nothing that is unknown to him in heaven already. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you that he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of the Father for you. And it, even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I love this because what Jesus is saying is that God knows all who are his. And when one of them goes astray, this is talking about someone who is a believer who then begins to backslide away from their relationship with Jesus Christ. God knows it. And what does he do? What does it say? He goes after them. He goes and seeks after them. Some of you know this from your own personal experience. Some of you spent years away from any kind of a relationship with Christ after meeting him at some point in your life. And you know, and you could, you could feel it in, in your life that there were times when he was calling you back, like he was right there saying, come on, come on. And depending on your time and your life and your circumstances, you're like, no, la, 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 la. I don't want to hear it. That sounds weird. That sounds Until one day you were finally like, yes, okay, yes. I need you. I need you. And he's like, Praise me. He, and he, he brings you back in. He goes out and he seeks after you. And he, t he uses an example of sheep here to them. And he says, if you had 100 sheep and one, you would go after that one sheep. When I, read it, when I read this this week, I was like, if one of my children wandered away, what wouldn't I do to go after that child? That is really what he's talking about. You, you all who have children, if one of your child, remember when they were little? And they, they, they would wander off. And we had the scariest moment. We first moved here, and I was completely unfamiliar with the area at all. And we were at some new friend's house with a whole bunch of families. And the kids were all playing hide-and-seek. <clears throat> and Joanna was three. And apparently a very good hider. Because no one could find her. And so the kids came over, and they said, we can't find Joanna. And my heart started going like this. Because I'm like, I don't know where we are, and I don't know what's going on, and there's alligators here, I heard. And, uh, and I was so afraid, but everybody, we just, everyone stopped, and we just started looking. We stopped everything, and everyone started looking, and I was frantically looking everywhere. And then she just kind of wanders out. Like, she was just hiding. But it, what, what wouldn't you do to go and find? And when I saw her, I just grabbed her up, and I was like, oh, 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 oh my gosh. Thank you, Lord. What wouldn't you do to find that one lost child who goes? If you're in a store and you can't find your kid, look at those round clothing racks that they have in the stores because they're in the middle of that. <laughs> just, just, I'm trying to help you. This is how the Lord looks at us. 
One of my children has gone away. I will. Some of you have what we would say uh, prodigal children. Maybe they're adult children, but they've wandered away. And you know that the Lord is seeking diligently after them because he says, they're mine and I will go and seek them. And there will be an amazing uh, celebration when he brings them back in. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. All right, let's spend a little bit of time in Matthew 18, chapters 15 through whatever, because I just hear so, this, this verse becomes more like a weapon to a lot of Christians. They're like, well, somebody hurt my feelings. I got to go and tell them they hurt my feelings so that they know that they offended me. Um, and really, this is what that's about. You hurt me. I want you to know you hurt me so then your feelings are also hurt because then I feel like we're even. And that's not this verse. In fact, there's other verses in the Bible that says as a Christian, there are some times that you let an offense go by. In fact, Proverbs 19.11, it says, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Did you hear that? Good sense Good sense makes you slow to anger, and it is to your glory to overlook an offense. That means that if someone says something to hurt your feelings, if a brother or sister says something, and they inadvertently hurt your feelings or say something that's offensive, it is okay for you to say, you know what, I forgive them. They didn't I mean, I don't need to let them know that that hurt my feelings. You know what Paul writes in Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 13? It's the love chapter. We only ever read it at weddings. Apparently, that's just become the, the wedding thing. But it's just talking about love. Do you know what love does? Do you know what love doesn't do? Does, doesn't do? It does not keep an account of wrongs. It doesn't keep track of that stuff. Peter will write this. Above all, have fervent love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. So lest you think, well, every time someone hurts my feelings in the church, I've got to go and tell them. It may not be always the case. And by the way, I want to draw your attention to this. If a brother sins against you, this is specific. This doesn't say if someone hurts your feelings. This says if someone sins. And it doesn't mean you must do it every single time. There are options. But if you think that I do need to do this, if you still feel like it is necessary to go to your brother or your sister, first of all, it says, go to them one-on-one. -on -one. You see where it says, and tell him his fault. Um, actually, what that means is <clears throat> go to them with convincing, solid evidence of what they've done. Convincing, solid evidence of what they've done one-on-one -on -one, because you're going to what? Win your brother back, not win the argument. You see the difference? You're going to, with the attitude of, I'm going to win back my brother, not I'm going to them to win this argument. Now, verse 16, it says, but if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Now, sometimes people think that that means that I've got to get two people, I've got to talk about this whole thing with two other people, get them on my side, and then the three of us go and confront this guy. 
But that is not what this is saying. What this is saying is now go with two other people so that they can hear the two of you talk about it and decide whether you are right or wrong. You might be wrong in this situation. And so two or three witnesses now are involved for them to say, you know what, we've heard it. Actually, I think, you know, like, like I was talking to Cesar about this last night. We were trying to kind of get our heads around this. And I was like, you know, it would be like if, if I was like saying, well, Cheryl stole my cow. And I would go to you and go, you stole my cow. And Cheryl would be like, no, it's my cow. No, you, you stole it from me. No, I didn't. Now I go and I get to, I get Denise and I get Bill and we go to Cheryl and I'm like, here's the evidence. Like I had a cow and then uh, I didn't have a cow. And then I saw Cheryl and she had a cow just like mine. And then she says, no, I bought this cow a day ago. And now Bill says, you know what? I did see her at the cow store. And what they're doing is they're establishing the truth. The witnesses are establishing the truth. And this is what this is talking about. It doesn't mean gang up on the person. It means bring people so that you can ascertain what the truth is. For what purpose? To gain back your brother. Because now your relationship is being damaged, right? And so now you want to gain back your brother, not pummel him. And now, okay, so now if he refuses to hear, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be like a tax, a heathen or a tax collector. Okay, so back to Cheryl and the cow. We have figured out, Bill and, uh, and, and Denise and I have ascertained the truth that Cheryl did actually steal my cow, but is willing, unwilling to say, you're right, forgive me, here's your cow back. Right? She says, no, I didn't, it's my cow, but we all know that she really did steal my cow. What happens is then you go to the church um, and the church leadership gets together and says, Cheryl, you stole this cow, you need to give it back. And you're like, no, I'm not doing it. Then what we say is, you can't stay here now. You're going to infect the rest of this body with your sin. You need to be turned out, it says, as a, as a heathen or a tax collector. means basically as an outsider with what purpose? So that she might come to a place where she realizes um, this fellowship and relationship is more important to me than this cow I'm going to go back and ask for forgiveness and be restored to fellowship. That is the entire goal of this, is restored relationship and fellowship. Not so we can all sit here and point our finger and say, cow stealer. Do you get where I'm going? Do you understand what I'm saying? Surely I say to you, whatever you bind here on earth and, and will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We've actually already talked about this. Remember, it's the idea is not whatever you do here will then be done in heaven, but the will be is as in. As it is in heaven, so shall it be here. So whatever you proclaim to be true in heaven will be true here. Whatever you bind or say is false, whatever according to heaven is false, will be false here. Stealing is bad. Stealing is wrong. Sin is bad. Sin in heaven is bad. Let it be wrong and bad here as well. Embrace that truth is what this is saying. And again, I say to you that if two or three agree on earth concerning anything that, will, that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Okay, so this is a verse that is just like traditionally just taken out. I just, like, I just like this one verse, so that if my brother and I get together and whatever we ask for, God will make it happen. No, no. 
Lord, you know, you just link arms with your brother and like two Mercedes would be great. And we're joined. First of all, they say, whenever it says, whatever you ask of me, he means ask of me according to my will. But in the context of the chapter, he's saying, when you come to me and say, Lord, we are praying for the restoration of our brother or sister who is caught in sin, Galatians 6, 1, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. The goal is to restore. How? With a hammer? With gentleness. The word restore, you know, it's a word that means in Greek as if you were mending a broken bone. You don't grab a broken bone and be like, get back in there. You do it gently. And that's what this whole section is talking about is the spiritual gentle restoration of one who has been overtaken by sin and maybe it's been against you, but you take them back in order to win your brother back and restore them into fellowship, not to kick them out of the church and be like, you're out forever. All about forgiveness and restoration. So, 21, go, Peter. Then Peter came to him, Jesus, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Peter. Peter's feeling super magnanimous right now. Because he's just heard the Lord talking about forgiving your brother who sins against you. And he comes up and he's like, Jesus, how often should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times. Now, you know what? You want, want to know why Peter's feeling so good about that? Is because at this time, rabbis taught three times was sufficient. Three times you could forgive your brother. And then after that, you, didn't, you weren't required to forgive him anymore. Three times. And so Peter's like, Lord, twice plus one. Is how many times, right? Two, two, twice what I should plus one more. Huh? Jesus, seven times? Peter. You know what's really interesting here also? Talking about lack of humility. Don't you find it strange that Peter doesn't say, Lord, how many times must my brother forgive me when I sin against? No, Peter assumes that he will be the one always having to extend forgiveness rather than being the one who needs to be forgiven. And if you're sitting there going, well, that's just because, you know, that's, that's, that's because we also feel that way. Because we, we often feel like, well, you know, how many times do I have to forgive somebody? Rather than to say, how many times will I be forgiven by somebody? Right? Because we're not humble. We're just not. But we need to be. Peter says, Lord, how many times? Up to seven times. And Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. 70 times seven. How many is that? Go. Yes, good. You're either really good at math or you've heard this before. 490 times. And, and Jesus says, no, not seven times, Peter. 490 times. Now, do you think, honestly, that what Jesus is saying is exactly 400? Because like, you're like, your brother sinned against you 488 times, and you're like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> you get two more times, and then no more forgiveness. No, like, imagine everybody in your life, and having to, how could you keep track of where everybody was on the 490 forgiveness scale? 
You get your little book out and you're like, okay, that was 360. I forgive you. No, you can't keep track. That's the point. That is the point that Jesus is making is like, you don't need to keep track. Love does not keep track of wrongs, does it? No, he's saying you need to develop a life of forgiveness. Develop a life of forgiveness that says it doesn't matter how many times, because I'm not keeping track. When you come to me and ask for forgiveness, I will forgive you. Seventy times seven, Peter. Now he's going to illustrate the importance of forgiveness with a a parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. All right. 10,000 talents then is anywhere between 10 million and a billion dollars. It's very hard to put your finger on that number. I, I read so many, and they were like, well, it's 10. No, it's 12. It's 50. It's 100. It's a billion. That's on purpose. You understand? What Jesus is saying is this servant owed a debt that was so large that he could never repay that debt. That's why I like a billion. And, uh, you know, what's, what's really interesting to me is, like, what master loans his servant a billion dollars. No, most commentators actually believe that he didn't even, wasn't aware of it, that this was someone who was kind of stealing from him over time or skimming off of his accounts so that it, he's just finding out about it right now. And now I'm thinking, what did this guy do with a bit? What servant has a billion dollars tucked away? And if he had it tucked away, he would have been able to pay it. So he couldn't have had it tucked away. What did he do with a billion dollars? How many, I mean, how many yachts does a servant have? It's a parable, remember. But he was unable to pay. Yeah. And his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and that payment be made. This is why I think that it wasn't just that he borrowed the money, but that he was stealing it, because this kind of action that the king takes seems to allude to the point that he, even by selling him and his, all his possessions and his wife and his kids and all that, he would not regain the money back. It was more punitive. The action was punitive, okay? And so the servant then fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And this is laughable because the servant is saying, all I need to do is I need a little more time to pay back a billion dollars. I just need more time. I can do it. I just need more time. And look what the king's response is. He has mercy, compassion, on this. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. This person, this servant, owed more than he could ever imagine, more than he could ever pay on his own, even though he thought that maybe he could do it in some way, calls out to him and he is forgiven of the debt completely. Now, 
That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Not a billion dollars, but not a tiny bit amount. It was probably, a denarii was like a day's pay, right? So this guy owed him a hundred days of pay, maybe $10,000 compared to a billion. You see, $10,000 compared to a billion. $10,000 is not a small amount of money. It's not insignificant, but it's not a billion dollars. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat. Whew, Jesus saying, pay me what you owe. You understand, first of all, he's not saying, pay me what you owe so I can pay back what I owe. You catch that? He's already been forgiven that debt. What he's saying is, you owe me money, I want it. I went through my billion dollars already. I need that extra 10000 So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. That sounds, that sounds familiar. Where have I heard that? Oh, that's right. Those are the exact same words that this servant just said to his master, to which his master had compassion on him and forgave him this debt. But what does he do? And when he would not, but he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So zero compassion, zero debt forgiveness, just simply throws him into debtor's prison, which obviously you would think, well, gosh, how will he ever pay off the debt if he's in prison, but it was up to his family at that point to then pay the debt that he owed to get him out of prison. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. And then the master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant. Do you see that? He calls him wicked servant. He didn't call him a wicked servant when he found out that he had stolen a billion dollars from him. He called him a wicked servant when he realized that he who had received forgiveness was unwilling to offer forgiveness. That is what made him a wicked servant. I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So, Jesus says, so my heavenly Father also will do to you if to each of you from his heart, from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespass. Jesus says, you have been forgiven much. How could you then not turn around and forgive much? What has this chapter been talking about? The need to forgive Others, those who offend, those who sin against you. The idea of forgiveness. Jesus says, you have been forgiven. Now forgive. This is a reminder. I, I, I read this. I'm not sure who, who wrote this, but it was, no one will ever sin against me more than I have sinned against God, and yet he forgives me every time I ask. No one will ever sin against me more than I have already sinned against God. It's a good reminder. And here's the thing. And here's the crazy part. This servant who owed a billion dollars was spared from prison by his master, but then by withholding forgiveness, ended right back up in prison. You understand what that's saying? Is that, that the worst prison is the prison of unforgiveness, and we put ourselves there. 
This is a good reminder to us about the importance of forgiveness. He says, resist pride. Humble yourselves like a child in order to come to me. And, and as a result, forgive one another. You know, when you, when you are holding out into forgiveness, there's pride in there. But I'm not getting what I, you know what, when they come to me and ask me for forgiveness, then maybe, un, unless it's more than seven times and then. You know, he says, no, 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 no. Forgive. You have been forgiven. Forgive. Have you ever forgiven someone who hasn't come to you and asked for forgiveness? It feels so good. It's like weight gone. Gone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much today for this word. Lord, I pray that you would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to resist pride. Oh, it's, it's, it's a powerful force in this world, Lord, and it tries to seep into our lives in all kinds of ways. Lord, that feeling that we're being treated in a way that we shouldn't be treated, Lord, or that we're not being treated in the way that we should be treated, Lord, help us to give all that up. Lord, help us to be, as you say, like a child who comes to you without being afraid, without trying to figure you out, but simply comes humbly to you because you are loved. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Lord God, I just thank you so much that you willingly went to the cross and died to forgive me of my debt. Lord, you paid it. You paid it all once and for all. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I thank you that you come and search for me when I go wayward, Lord, when I start to wander away. Lord, even if it's just when I start to wander away because I'm holding out forgiveness or I'm becoming too prideful, Lord, you are still pursuing me. Lord, your goal is to restore me, Lord, as it should be our goal to restore those who sin against us as well. Lord, I just thank you so much for this time and for your word. Pray that it has taken root into our hearts this morning. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.